Welcome to the Unlocking Unlimited Potential Stories podcast. My name is Dr. Brandon Beck, and I am so excited for you to be here to join us today. The goal of this show is to amplify the stories of amazing people, which serve as inspiration for your journey. Your story matters. It tells us who you are and who you want to be. Enjoy this opportunity to hear from these innovative thought leaders as they discuss what it means to unlock unlimited potential. If you are looking for an opportunity to connect further with me after this show, please visit brandonbeckedu.com to learn more about my speaking, coaching, consulting, and other offerings that are designed to help you and your organization find greater results in your journey. Welcome to the Unlocking Unlimited Potential Stories show. Man, I could not stop talking through the whole pre-show. I finally said I got to shut up and just press record because I am super pumped to have this amazing guest. She's an author of 27 books. I said that right. 27 books. Nine best-selling books. That's an amazing achievement. Her most recent book, Collaboration and Co-Teaching for Dual Language Learners, is fresh off the press. Ladies and gentlemen, Andrea Honigsfeld, how are you? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for inviting me to be on your show. It's amazing to have you here. We were talking about our deep connection, how I had seen you, God, at maybe 10 years ago in an event and had been following you since and... Just incredible to see the work that you have done. And I'm excited to have you and and pick your brain for all my fellow dual language teachers out there, as well as all the teachers of language learners. I would love to be able to dive into your story. So we're going to dive right in. So first of all, just give us the runaround. Give us a little bit of an introduction. Well, I was born in Reese and raised in Hungary, in case anybody's wondering where that accent is coming from. And from a very, very young age, maybe I was five or six years old, I was already lining up my dolls and bears and I was teaching them. My father wanted to wanted me to be a doctor and I said, no, I wanna be a teacher. And I just kept teaching, kept making little tiny notebooks for them, writing on their behalf. So I enjoyed teaching first, the dolls and the bears. And then as soon as I had the opportunity, my very first job as a teenager was to teach English to my neighbor's daughters who wanted to practice their English as girls about two or three years younger than me. So I, I think I was born to become a teacher and I'm a lifelong learner and a lifelong teacher. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, your experience, just how you came to find yourself into such a amazing pathway through the world of language teaching. And just, I mean, there's so many different ways that you fit, went through the, the roller coaster of all of that, I guess, or the, the joy ride. Um, so just talk us through a little bit of how you got from point A to point B, if that's, and I, you don't need to start at book 27, but you got, you know, the first book, but you have to tell us when the first book was written, because I'm, I'm going to do the math. 
<laughs> okay. All right. Well, my very first book was actually written and published when I was 28 years old and it was such an honor. I was back in Hungary and I spent a year there and was working with the local university to develop some instructional materials for Hungarian as a foreign language. HFL is very such a thing. There is actually a huge number of language enthusiasts out there in the world who come together in Debrecen, Hungary every summer to learn Hungarian. And I was part of that summer university faculty. I was teaching Hungarian, but they wanted to do something more creative and, and um, develop some new materials. And they hired me, they commissioned me to write a video workbook. And I really enjoyed that because it sounds like a little boring. It's a video workbook, but what was that? They were filming a footage of authentic conversations that I helped write so that learning Hungarian could become more authentic, more meaningful, not just something where you learn to conjugate the 44 cases of the Hungarian verbs and nouns and all of those complicated grammatical structures that turned people off pretty soon after they started learning Hungarian. So I enjoyed it so much to share my creativity and develop something that invites the learner into these authentic conversations and, and fun, joyful learning experiences. And then when I came to the United States, I became involved with English as a foreign language. I mean, sorry, English as a second language teaching. I was already an EFL, English as a foreign language teacher at the middle school level in Hungary as well. So it was a shift in focus and very early on, I got invited to join the doctoral program at St. John's University. I had an amazing mentor, Dr. Rita Dunn, who taught me how to write books. And this is a little bit of a sad story, but it's a true story. Her very, very last book, her 31st book, was my first book to be published in the United States. She showed me. Wow. I know. So tell me. How powerful is that, that she invited me to write with her at the height of, and then sadly already we did not know at that time, at the end of her career and guided me, mentored me, supported me every step of the way. Now that was in 2009 when I published that book. And after the book was published and very sadly, shortly after that, she passed away. I felt that her guidance, her support, her teaching will forever stay with me. And then I invited a colleague, Maria Dove, who you know from many of my books. She's my frequent collaborator, co-author, co-presenter. We co a lot. We like to joke about this. And we wrote our first book, which was published in 2010 on collaboration and co-teaching. And we did not know that that was going to become a national bestseller and that there are no other books on collaborating and co-teaching in support of multilingual learners. There are plenty of books for special education, inclusion, but not for else, not for multilingual learners. So that's the story of how I got to collaborate, to write, to find a partner with whom I can continue developing new material, new publications and that's Maria and then we expanded our circle of collaboration and we have worked with lots of other people in collaboration on the topic of collaboration and here we are you and I are collaborating so we're collaborating on collaborating yes it's 
you know, it's we rise by lifting others. And I think that's really an amazing thing. And you know what I really think that is amazing from a, a dual language, being a dual language myself for the past 15 years. Um, and many people know my story as the monolingual bilingual educator and someone who just kind of jumped in all in and was ready for whatever it would take because I just really enjoyed being around students and I had a really great experience. And the greatest thing that I think that comes out of your work, which I think is just, I don't know if I would say the word ironic or so simple or just so beautiful. I'm not sure, but the idea that it's, it takes a village, Mm. you know, and I think that you, you've, you've now dedicated your life now to numerous books on this topic. So I got to, I got to hear a little bit about your, your, your thoughts on, on collaboration. And it's, it's the reason why it's the lens to begin with for teaching multilinguals. Well, part of it started in Hungary. I'm going to take you back there for a moment because Eastern European cultures, as well as many other parts of the world, are highly collectivistic. So thinking about Western culture or American culture being individualistic, you have to pull yourself up by your bootstraps or being able to take care of yourself and take great pride on what you can achieve on your own. In many other cultures, a lot more value is placed on supporting each other, being part of a smaller or larger community. Even the proverb that you just quoted, cited here, that you need a village to raise a child, indeed, a lot of cultures live by that. So Hungary happens to be one like that. So I grew up there as well as began my teaching career there, where out of the you know the X number of hours that we have to spend on the school property, I only taught about three or four periods a day. The rest of the day was dedicated to collaboration. So we co-planned. It came naturally. Nobody even called it co-planning or collaboration. We just did it because that's the way you are a teacher. That's what defines your identity as a teacher. You work with others, you share. So coming to the United States was quite a culture shock for me. (laughs) And as soon as I found Maria and we discovered that each of us are drawn to collaboration, she started collaborating and co-teaching within the suburban community or context on Long Island. And as a New York City educator, I had a visionary principal, Carol Wertheimer. She deserves a huge shout out because in the early 1990s, she called a meeting for the ESL teachers. That was our name at that time in New York City and asked us how much time we spend in the hallway, taking the kids up and down this absolutely beautiful pre-war building in in, um, Ridgewood, New York. And of course we spent a lot of minutes, a lot of hours adding up to hundreds hundreds of minutes and hours. So then she thought, well, why don't we try what special ed is doing? Why do we pull the children out? Why don't you keep the children in the classroom and try delivering your instruction that way? Again, she didn't call it co-teaching. She didn't call it an integrated model that later on in 2015, New York State sanctioned as the pathway to supporting multilingual learners. 
we just try to emulate what special education is doing. We use the power and precedence of, of special education. And it worked out quite well. I spent two hours every day in a second grade classroom. And I really enjoyed the opportunity of moving through multiple configurations. We didn't call them co-teaching models at that time yet. I was just living and breathing it and truly enjoying it, finding joy both in not having to remove the children from the classroom, taking them somewhere else where I magically will fix their linguistic challenges and then bring them back into the classroom. Instead, we embrace the idea that we're going to work together. The classroom teacher, Sandy Schlaff, and I work together every day. We co-planned an extra period every Friday to be prepared for the next week. And the kids got so much out of it. They truly performed better than any of my students ever before. So that became something that affirmed my thinking around collaboration. But at that time, I wasn't ready to write anything, to publish anything. I presented at a couple of conferences. But then I started my doctoral program. I became a full-time doctoral student as a doctoral research assistant at St. John's. So I actually had to give up my New York City job. I was no longer an ESL teacher. I was a full-time doctoral student and research assistant. And then I revisited the topic of um, English learners and collaboration when I discovered my connection with Maria a few years later. Wow. There are so many amazing things inside of that, but I do have to first of all, just kind of blown away by the idea of taking what was happening in the special education classroom and how I think that goes to say a lot for what's been happening in a special education classroom for a long time, that differentiation, that individual attention, maybe even a little bit of fluctuation on what's achievable standards for that are that are going to lead to successful expectations. You know, I, 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 that part to me is, is, I love that that's the foundation. And I know that a lot of special educators out there um, have, would really appreciate to know that that is really amazing work. That's so thank you to all of them and some amazing people that you talked about. But what I also love, and I know a lot of people that listen to this show are people that are pursuing that next step or taking their experience from one place and putting it into a, wrapping it up, putting it into a book or a dissertation. And a lot of people that where the seeds are planted, I know my seeds were planted in, in my dissertation work and I know many other people. And just talk about how just putting that all together has just evolved over time. I have read everything that I could put my hands on that was connected to collaboration and co-teaching when I connected with Maria and we started presenting at conferences in 2007. And we noticed that the special education inclusion books have a certain structure. So when Maria and I first started presenting, imagine that we're walking into a conference room and we put up our big posters and we ask our participants to form small groups and in front of each poster, write down their questions related to the six question words, who, what, where, when, why, and how. So we generated lots of questions about collaboration and co-teaching. So we kept saving these posters. And then one day, I don't know anymore who said it, if it's Maria or me, because we are kind of in synergy 
in our, my, our, we have this mind meld now. We finish each other's sentences and work on so many different things together. We don't even know who wrote which sentence anymore. So we had this idea that we could write a book around these question words. And that was the organizational structure of our very first book, growing out of many, many workshops where we were gathering authentic stories from teachers, when we were asking them to ask those questions, asking the questions that really are on their minds so that we could start generating possible answers. We always emphasize how our work is not prescriptive. We're not telling anybody these, this, these are the five steps or seven steps or 10 steps that you have to follow to be a strong collaborator. Instead, we invite our audience, our readers, our um, collaborators, because we collaborate now with lots of lots of teachers and districts and, and even more authors and um, researchers. Ask your authentic questions. Ask the questions that are really on your mind and let's make it a collaborative inquiry process in which we try to co-construct meaning out of this because there's not one right way to collaborate. There's not one right way to co-teach or to serve our multilingual learners. One thing we know is that not one single person can do it alone. So circling back to that idea that you need a village to raise a child, you need a community of supporting um, and supportive educators, family members, community members to work together for the sake of this population. Absolutely. And just the idea of, you know, I think there's just even more joy in the journey when we're not shutting ourselves in our rooms and trying to handle this alone, because there are times as educators, I know we all do that. I know there's just some times where there's just not enough time. And I always go back to this and, and I'm sure you'll agree. And, you know, we can't talk about collaboration without talking about relationships and developing relationships with students first and foremost. I mean, talk a little bit about your thoughts on that. Our relationship is at the very core of this. And none of us has ever taken a course, an undergraduate or graduate course in how to forge professional and personal relationships in the workplace, how to collaborate, even how to communicate. I found in my informal survey that very, very few teachers have ever even taken a course in communication arts or communication skills. So building relationships and building relational trust is at the crux of successful collaboration, whether it's between and among students or facilitating learning, for students and with students, learning from students, working together with colleagues, administrators, coaches, and other members of the community. So relational trust has been thoroughly researched by many, but I think at the very core of that is that we um, make sure that we show up, that we show up with an open mind, we invite others into that personal professional space in which we're going to show vulnerability, but we also do our very best. So that personal regard, that uh, professional commitment and, 
and care for each other. That ethic of care all combined together leads to relational trust. I summarized a lot of research there for you. I have without, amazing without naming, giving you names. So this is not a little mini dissertation uh, on the topic. <laughs> No, that please don't, please don't. You know, they all deserve the credit. Trust me, but we're all working off of all the work. Anybody that wants to know, they can just pick up a copy of your book, and I'm sure they can just flip through the back pages and they'll figure it out. But no, and it's and it also comes from experience. It also comes from your experience. I mean, you're in so many schools and in so many different places. And what are you seeing right now in schools, um, in terms of keeping educators hopeful out there during difficult times? Well, since you mentioned difficult times, we're still at the tail end of coming out of COVID and who knows how A long- A very difficult time to collaborate, by the way. <laughs> Yet, interestingly- Very I, uh, different. Very, very different, but very unique um, situations emerged during COVID when we were all first year teachers when we have never yeah. done this before, because one obstacle to collaboration or being innovative in a school context is when somebody might say, oh, we have never done it that way. So we have to go back to the way we are most comfortable instructing our students, assessing them and so forth. But COVID disrupted that. So on day one or day 30 or day 180 of COVID, we could not say that, well, for 20 years, I've been teaching this way, so we're going to stick with that approach. So we all had to show a lot more vulnerability, a lot more risk-taking. And so many teachers started sharing a lot more and inviting others into that virtual space. That virtual uh, collaboration happened on Twitter, on Facebook, on a lot of other platforms, Lots of lots of blogs emerged that I have not seen before. So COVID became a catalyst for change to some degree related to collaboration because we almost normalized collaboration. We needed each other more than ever before, especially when we were so isolated and we could only connect through Zoom or Meets or Google or other platforms. So we needed to reach out to each other, we needed to share, and we needed to feel validated and affirmed by others. So I found that collaboration has, to some degree, um, become mainstream during COVID. Now, going back into the classroom, I'm not see seeing the same. There is a little bit of a more of a push pushback against collaboration now. I think people want to reclaim their classroom spaces, reclaim their teaching styles. But I'm very hopeful that we're going to hit that balance again and recognize the value of sharing and um, offering support to each other. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, and the other thing, too, about the pandemic, I think that was helpful for this particular language learners in general is we were able to see access taken to a new to many new heights, you know, many times where we couldn't get on the the computer, some people weren't able to use the internet or have access to the internet. All of a sudden, there were ways that schools were figuring out just pretty much every single way they could to make that happen. So I think there's that resilience piece in there too, the idea that we were able to create so many pathways that it almost became easier. It almost became easier to sit in your room on a meeting instead of being in the same room but we also missed that piece you know and i think that that's 
there's something to be said about every single educator that's out there and every single person that's out there showing up every single day, because I agree with what you said. You, you got to show up. You got to keep showing up. And I know that we're going to kind of turn this now towards the dedication because this ties right in with the dedication we were talking about. So one thing we do on this show is we dedicate the show to someone or others who are out there unlocking unlimited potential and all whom they serve. So give it to us. So my dedication goes to the hundreds and hundreds of educators that have contributed not only to my books, but to the successful collaborative practices in classrooms across the United States and internationally related to serving multilingual learners. I mean, it's got to be amazing at your point in your career to just kind of look back at the beginning at book number one and, and just where you started teaching Hungarian. Ah, it's so amazing. I mean, how does that feel for you? I mean, when you look back and take a moment to reflect sometime, do you sometimes, what's your advice to others who really, really, a lot of people listen to the show, a lot of them are kind of in that place, like I told you, what's your advice? Well, as you said, look back and look ahead at the same time, reflect on what went well. I always take a positive asset-based approach and think about how the glass is half full, not half empty, what we have already achieved in education, both personally and professionally, and what we're going to be doing next. Where are we heading next? So as you mentioned, my book with actually not Maria Dove, but Dr. Joan Lachance was just published focusing on dual language learners, but I'm already working on a couple of new projects as well with new collaborators and always moving forward. Every single day, I dedicate some time to reading or writing professionally. So that's one of one piece of advice I would like to give to anybody who is engaged in writing, publishing, working on a dissertation, keeping up a blog or any other way communicating professionally to always do that every day a little bit even if it's just shaping some of those sentences even if rereading rewriting something but that keeps those thoughts always at the forefront of your mind and that helps you become more productive a little added question where do you do your writing do you do it in in your phone do you do it in a notebook do you do it in the computer what's your system i have a laptop that I'm probably somehow attached to it permanently because it's always, always with me. And um, I don't have, this is my office space where we are recording this, but I don't have a formal um, desktop or a computer that would, would not be traveling with me. So. Yes. Always, always have a notebook computer nearby to flip open to get after it. I appreciate that. And so the book is out. You'll be able to see the information about that and all the other amazing things, including your website and amazing follow, by the way, if you are not following Andrea, it has been amazing to connect with you. I'm so excited to dive in to the new book because that just came out and you actually haven't received a copy of it yet because it came out on pre-order and you haven't got it. So if any readers out there, you got to send you got to send her a copy of her book. She's going to get it soon from her publisher. But let's see if we can we can get someone to beat it there. Well, thank you. I'm hoping to get a copy next week. I have a digital <laughs> copy. I've seen it already. It's beautifully illustrated by Claribel Gonzalez, who is an ENL educator in Buffalo, New York. 
and a sketch note artist extraordinaire. I have to give her a huge, huge shout out. She's just amazing. And Margot Gottlieb, who is the guru of assessment for multilingual learners, is the author of the foreword. Amazing. So many amazing names just dropping. So many names. So amazing to see the connections. And I've seen all these authors. I've seen them all. I've read, read so much work. And it's just amazing to have you in the room and, and to hear the story behind the story. Um, honestly, that's what's most important. So I really appreciate you for all you're doing and for all that you're going to continue to do, because it seems like you got a lot more coming out that we're super excited about. So thank you again for joining me. I appreciate you. Thank you so much for having me. No problem. And to all the listeners out there, if you haven't signed up for the Something For You newsletter from BrandonBeckEDU.com, make sure you jump over to BrandonBeckEDU.com and sign up. Why? Because it's free. And I spend a lot of time on it each week. And I think that you should get it because it's into your mailbox on the 1st and 15th. So check it out. Sign up. Great tips coming soon. And for everybody else out there, all you educators, remember that the journey towards unlocking unlimited potential, it begins with you. I hope that you all continue to live with passion and purpose. Take care. <laughs>